0: Well, as we return to our series in Ephesians, I am thinking right now of a popular bumper sticker that I often see on cars when I drive around, and the bumper sticker usually either says, have faith or trust in God, and that's it. It just says that, have faith or trust in God, and I think for us as Christians, that's a great message, but by itself, it doesn't tell us enough because it can be misinterpreted in so many different ways. Faith is, in the world, kind of this nebulous concept. And we have to understand the world often takes biblical concepts and make them something different than what they are in the Bible. And so faith is one of these words that get used quite often. It gets used and abused, and oftentimes people will talk about just having faith in faith as an example. You see, when we see a bumper sticker that says, Trust God. The question is, okay, yeah, trust God, but what are you trusting God for? And when you say that to an unbeliever, does that even make any sense? Because even when I talk to people who are unbelievers, they will talk about faith as being this very, very important concept, but they'll talk about faith in anything but God himself. And so we want to be sure that when we talk about faith, that we are talking about it in the way that God intends it. And concept, this concept of faith is so central because we have seen recently people who have walked away from the faith. Uh, We have seen a number of people, even pastors, who say they no longer believe. And it all ties back to having faith. It is a faith that should persevere us. It is a faith that should inform us. It is a faith that should give us hope. It is a faith that should help us sustain any trials that we go through. And so it's no coincidence that Paul makes sure that one of the elements of armor that he wants to address is indeed the shield of faith. And so it would be wise for us to be able to learn what it is the shield of faith does, how it protects us, and how we can utilize it. And so as we go into this morning's message, the title, obviously, we're in part seven of the Armor of God. And we are looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. Our purpose this morning is to understand, um, it's a typo there, but to understand how to utilize the shield of faith in spiritual warfare. And we will follow in this message three directives needed to effectively use the shield of faith for that spiritual warfare. But let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We're going back to the beginning of this section, as I've been doing each and every week, just to remind you of the overall context of how this started. This is the final section of Ephesians. This is the grand finale. This is the climax of the letter. This is what everything is building up to. Of course, the central command in Ephesians is found at the start of chapter 4 when Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. But as he has been showing us how to walk according to that calling, he now culminates with this command, verse 10, finally be strong, and literally it's to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That is the overarching command for this final section, is to be strengthened in the Lord. It is a reminder that it is the Lord who strengthens us. But we also have a responsibility to make sure that we are putting ourselves in the position to be strengthened by him. And then verse 11 tells us how we are to do that. We are to put on the full armor of God. And this is what the full armor of God does. It helps us to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And that's going to be very pertinent for the shield of faith this morning. But continuing on in verse 12, we are reminded that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So important to remind us of this, especially today with all the divisions and all the hatred and all the things that are being said amongst people within our country. Our battle is not flesh and blood. Our battle is against the rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. All of that pointing to the demonic realm. Not just Satan, but all of his demonic servants. And then verse 13, Paul reminds us, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And that leads us into the elements of the armor of God, those elements that we have been studying over the last three weeks. In fact, the elements, I have them numbered from verses 14 through 17. We have six elements. We've already covered the first three. Verse 14 is the repeated command stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And that is a reminder to us that truth is what sets us free. Truth is the foundation for all that we do. In fact, for many of these elements of armor, they all tie into one another, they're all dependent upon one another. But we start with what we know to be true. And then the second element of armor was the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is at the heart of the gospel. The reason why we need the gospel, the reason why we need the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are inherently unrighteous. Everyone who has ever lived aside from the Lord Jesus Christ is unrighteous. But when you responded to the gospel, when you repented and put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, you received the righteousness of God to cover you. And so this is the righteousness of God that reminds us that our righteousness comes from Him and it is not of our own. And then verse 15, last week what we saw is having shod or having prepared your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And your feet having it prepared with the gospel of peace, it was a reminder to us that the gospel, the outcome of the gospel is peace. We have peace with God our Father. We have peace with one another within the body of Christ. Paul spoke about peace between Jew and Gentile. And so there is a peace that is achieved through the work of Jesus Christ. You may remember the call from Paul to tell us, be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, lift up all your anxieties to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And now we get to verse 16, and verse 16 says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so that brings us to the first directive. The first directive needed to effectively use the shield of faith for spiritual warfare, and that is to take up the shield of faith, to take up the shield of faith. As we take a look once again at verse 16, It's a reminder that the main command is there in verse 14, stand firm therefore, but we see that there is a subtle break. There is a subtle change in language because the first four elements, Paul was saying, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It is a reminder that those first three elements, those are things that we have to have prepared before we can even stand. We do those things immediately, and then we can stand. And then in addition, verse 16 says, in addition to all. So in addition to those first three pieces that you have put on, in addition to all the preparation that you have done. Now the last three elements are going to be items that you pick up, that you take up. Because these are not items that, from a human sense, when you think about the Roman soldier, these are not items that they keep on all the time. The first three items are items that they must be prepared with. At all times. But the last three items, they take up as soon as the battle starts. And the last three items, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. These are items that are not fastened to the body, if you will. But you pick them up as additional equipment to put on as you need them. So in addition to all this preparation, what we're going to do is we're going to take up the shield of faith. Taking up the shield of faith. And just to give you an idea of this shield, we have to be able to think in terms of the Roman foot soldier, because that is likely who Paul was thinking about as he was pulling together this illustration. In fact, he was likely chained to a Roman soldier as he was making this illustration. The shield comes in two different varieties for the Roman soldiers. There are two types of shields. There is a small shield and there is a large shield, to put it very simply. And the shields served different purposes depending upon which ones you were using. But the dimensions of the small one, the small one would be strapped to your forearm. There would be a couple of leather, leather straps, you put it to your forearm, and it's more for hand-to-hand combat. The larger shield was typically four and a half feet tall and two and a half feet wide. And, and it was meant for you to be able to crouch behind it, and, and it would cover your entire body. The purpose, as I mentioned, the small one, really the one that goes on your forearm, that's hand-to-hand combat. If you're engaging each other, if you're in a sword fight, the shield would help you parry the blows of the other person's sword. The large one was meant to protect from projectiles, arrows, right? And what they would do, what the soldiers would do with these large shields, they would not only stand behind them, but they would really create a wall when there was projectiles coming in. It would create a wall, there would even be some who lifted it up higher to create a wall that was not just in front, but over the top. And in many ways, it would protect even the archers that were on your side who can go ahead and start shooting arrows the other way while being protected from arrows coming their way. And so the shield that's being talked about in this passage is that large shield. The Greek word that Paul uses describes that large shield, that large shield that's meant to provide full body protection intended to protect you from those projectiles, from those arrows. And in terms of the material, these shields were typically a combination of wood and metal, but the large ones also had leather layers, and I'll talk about that in just a moment because it was not just for deflecting, but it was also for putting out, as we will see in a moment. But the shield is described as a shield of faith, and so it is important for us to understand what do we mean by faith. Um, the Greek word is uh, pistos, and it can be used as either a noun or adjective, and there's even a verb form of that word. As a noun, it can refer to faith or belief or trust. So you, you, can, you can understand that. There's very close connections between all three of those words. As an adjective, it's usually faithful. So, well done, good and faithful slave, right? Or God is faithful. So, as an adjective, it's used in that way. It can, also mean obedient. So when we say, well done, good and faithful servant, we're talking about a servant or a slave who is obedient to his master. But when it's used in verb form, which the word pistua means to believe. So when you are described as believing in God, it is really the same word being used for faith. It's just turned into a verb. Now, the faith here, we're obviously talking about a noun, the shield of faith. The faith can refer to what it is that we believe. So, for instance, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5 talks about how we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that is to say that all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we share the same truths of our faith. That is really what it is emphasizing in that context. Faith can also refer to God's faithfulness. So, for instance, if you went through the letter of 1 Corinthians, you will see the statement repeated over and over again that God is faithful. God is faithful. And indeed, He is faithful. In fact, we rely upon His faithfulness, don't we? We rely upon Him to be faithful to His promises to us. And so, first and foremost, we recognize that God is faithful. But most often through these scriptures, and especially when you read through the Gospels and you read through the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, faith most often refers to those who have faith in God. It most often refers to the faith that we have in the Lord, and that brings up this important reminder that for, for us as believers, this important reminder is that faith requires an object to have faith in. We're not talking in nebulous or vague terms about faith for the sake of faith. And this is not a blind faith. There's a lot of people that will look at us and say, you guys are just blind in your faith. No, this is not blind faith. We have been proven, it's been proven to us in our hearts and our minds about the existence of God. All of the world testifies to the existence of God in his creation. We know that Jesus Christ came in human flesh. We know that he died on the cross. We know that he was resurrected. These are things that does not require blind faith. We know the power of the scriptures. We know the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have been in Christ, you have at various times felt that power working in your life. That is not blind faith. This is a faith in God that helps us to endure, and it's what separates us from the cults. A lot of cults will emphasize faith just for the sake of faith. A lot of false religions will just talk about faith. Even people who are not religious will talk about having faith in yourself. And I understand when people say that, you know, have faith in your abilities, have faith in the skills that you have that you can take on a task. I understand that, but first and foremost, our faith needs to be in God. And when we look at how faith has been used in Ephesians, we see that faith in God mentioned very clearly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said this, in Him, You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, and that is the verb form of faith, you have put your faith into, you have believed, you have put your faith into, after having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And verse 15, for this reason too I have heard of the faith, of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints. That is Paul acknowledging the people of Ephesus and the faith that he has heard about that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we also always want to remember that our faith starts first and foremost in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Going on to verse 19, Paul talks about the power that is available to us. Verse 19, this is a power that's available to all believers. He says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, toward us who have faith? This is the verb form of faith. Paul is saying that you have power available to you as believers, as people who have faith in God. So you can see just in these few verses just how critical this faith is. And even in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, for by grace, and what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is a gift. It's not something that you deserve. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And even in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, we see this, in whom we have boldness. This is, this is Paul talking about the boldness that we have in our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. He's talking about the access that we have to God. We have already lifted up a few prayers this morning, and our prayers are to God, and we have access to God because we have faith in Him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And even further down, verses 16 to 17, this is the final prayer that Paul will lift up before he starts chapter 4 and all the application that he wants us to make out of this theology. That prayer was that he wants us to be strengthened. He wants us to know the power of God. But look at verse 16. He prays that he, being God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man so that God may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the connection between the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and all that is tied together through faith. It is a faith in God. But also I was interested, it was interesting to me as I was studying this, just how often when you even go back to the Old Testament, how often God represents himself as a shield. God often represents himself as our shield, and I believe that this will tie into faith because he is only a shield to those who have faith in him. Even Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. This is the time of Abram, who would be renamed Abraham. But verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. I am a shield to you. And a few verses later, and I didn't have it here, but I probably should have put it in there. A few verses later, it says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. I believe that's in verse 6. So God says he is a shield to Abraham. How about in the psalm, Psalm 5, verse 12? For it is you who blesses, talking to God, it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. You ever thought of yourself as believers being surrounded by God's favor? That is a wonderful, magnificent truth. You are surrounded by the favor of God and you don't even realize it. Even when you're going through struggles and trials and tribulations, you are surrounded by favor. You are surrounded with favor as with a shield. And a few verses from Psalm 18. Psalm 18. There's a few verses coming from here, and it makes me want to study this psalm. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's a lot of illustrations there just in that one verse. And it shows us just how God protects us. And one of those images, obviously, being this shield. Later in verse 30, as for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. If you have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, you have taken refuge in God. And obviously, we understand that word for refuge is a place you go to for safety when there is danger. God is a refuge to us. He is our shield. And Psalm later in Psalm 18, verse 35, you have, also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. And then Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield, my heart trusts in Him. And I love this because it not only mentions the Lord as a strength and a shield, but it says my heart trusts. In other words, my heart has faith, my heart believes in Him. Your belief in God is what's going to end up being a shield for you when you go through difficult times. And so that is what it means to take up the shield of faith. We have this shield just as a soldier takes it up. And this shield is one that provides us with full cover, with full protection. And that shield is represented by our faith, but that shield is also the power of God through faith. Our faith is in Him. But that shield is providing us with another purpose, a more important purpose as it relates to the spiritual war. You see, once again, the reminder that our war, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against Satan. It's against the powers and the evil spirits of wickedness. And so that brings us to the second directive. The first one was to take up the shield of faith. The second one is to deflect the arrows of Satan to deflect the arrows of Satan. So as we go back into the, our passage for this morning, we see in verse 16, not only in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, but also this shield of faith is that with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, let me just paint a picture here for the Roman soldier I mentioned that that full body shield was meant to be able to provide you with full protection against projectiles, against arrows that are flying in. But here's the thing, as dangerous as those arrows are, and they are dangerous, obviously with sharp pointed tips that could pierce your armor, pierce your heart, and kill you if it hits you in the right spot. But it's not just the arrows themselves, but what was common during this time was to take these arrows and with the tip they would dip it or or wrap it in pitch. And pitch, when I talk about pitch, it's like this mixture of petroleum and tar. It's a highly flammable substance. And so what, uh, what soldiers would do, archers would do, when they want to shoot flaming arrows, they would wrap the arrows in this pitch and light it up and would create this intense fire. And obviously you understand how fire can spread. We understand that more than anyone else in the US here in California, don't we? Fire can spread rapidly and when you put these arrows and we create these tips with this tar, with this pitch, this petroleum substance that lights on fire, when it hits its target, it doesn't even need to hit the target itself. That fire just needs to catch on something. Because when it struck its object, even if it was a shield, there would be bits of flaming substances that would spread out. And it could be dangerous. If it caught your clothing, if it caught a brush that was nearby, it could set fire to anything that was around you. And this is to remind us that when Satan attacks, his attacks are dangerous, they are lethal. They are incredibly dangerous. They have an incredible ability to not only strike at its object, but also to spread like wildfire. And so that's why when these soldiers, when they had to protect themselves against flaming arrows, that's why they had to create this wall, this shield wall. But not only that, I had mentioned that the shield has leather on it. You see, this shield, this, this 4 and a half by two and a half foot shield, had to either be drenched with water or it had to be immersed in some sort of oily liquid so that when the shield, when the arrow struck that shield, it would put out the fire before that fire can spread. And so obviously that shield, you can imagine, it's already heavy enough being that large. But if you've ever tried to pick something up that's been drenched in water, you know how much heavier it can get. Drenched in water or drenched in some sort of oily substance, whatever it was that it was used to put out that fire. But that's also why they would create these large walls in front and over the top for these flaming arrows to make sure those flaming arrows could not get through. They didn't slip through. They hit something behind you that lit on fire that created a danger for the foot soldiers. But this is also a reminder as we think about these flaming arrows, because these flaming arrows, again, our war is not flesh and blood, but it is spiritual. These flaming arrows are symbolic of the attacks, of the schemes of Satan. It is a reminder to us, even as we go back a couple of verses, just the fact that we are here to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Once again, chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And verse 12 reminds us of our spiritual struggle. And just to pull this slide up again, I had shown this a few weeks ago, but when we had studied the schemes of Satan, you remember, we walk through all these examples of the way, just in the Bible, how Satan will attack you. And this is not a complete list. Folks, this is not a complete list. Satan is going to attack you in a myriad of different ways. And really, in this context, when we think about the shield of faith, his desire, his purpose, his object is to rock your faith. And we as believers, though, Satan can never take away our salvation he can certainly make our faith weak. He can either make it weak or he can keep it weak. And so we have to be wary of the various ways that Satan schemes against us. Deception, causing us or wanting us to curse God, being anxious, that's a common one. Being anxious for our circumstances. Satan will twist God's truth. He will levy accusations against the saints. These are all the things that we had covered a few weeks ago, so this is just review. He wants you to pursue worldliness. He wants you to pursue self. He wants you to take your eyes off of God and put your eyes on your worldly circumstances, on your own self, on your own desires. He wants you to be angry. He wants you to refuse forgiveness to someone who has wronged you. For the unbelieving world, he causes them to be blind to the gospel. There are so many ways that Satan will operate. And we're reminded back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, specifically in chapter 2, we formally walked. Uh, Verse 1 said, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Verse 2, in which you formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It is a reminder to us that all unbelievers, all of us, prior to responding to the gospel, we were all following after Satan. And that is even the best of people who are not believers. They're following after Satan. And even in 1 John 5, 19, John writes, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He uses the exact same terminology Paul uses about the flaming arrows of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but we know that's not going to be forever, don't we? We know that the Lord will return, don't we? And we know ultimately our Lord is far more powerful than the God of this world right now. And so we continue to look forward to his return. And so this is us deflecting the arrows of Satan. It's going to be that shield of faith. It's going to be that faith that's directed at God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is going to be a faith that remembers these schemes of Satan. it's going to be a faith that trusts in God in all circumstances. It's going to be a faith that causes us to be obedient to God's word even when it's hard. It's going to be a faith that recognizes, that recognizes that God blesses those who put their faith into him actively on a day-to-day basis as us, for us as believers. Because it's one thing to put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved, but this action of putting faith into God each and every day is an active duty that we have every single day. Every single day. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come automatic. It starts from the moment you wake up and it goes all the way to the time you go to sleep. You may at any time be under attack. In fact, even on the battlefield, when people are on the battlefield and those of you who have served in the military and been out on tours, you understand this, that the battlefield is sometimes peaceful. There are times where there seems to be no activity. There are times where things are slow. And then there are times that when the attack comes, they come in hordes. That you have, a diff- you have even difficulty finding time to take a breath because there is so much action, there is so much danger. And I want you to understand that can be very much the same way for us as believers in a spiritual sense. You may have days where things seem to be going extremely well. You have days where it feels easy to worship the Lord. You have days where you find great encouragement in fellowship. You have great encouragement in reading the scriptures. You're finding it easier to read. You're you're finding it easier to grow and then suddenly you hit this avalanche of attacks and Satan can do that. Just when you are not paying attention, just when you are not expecting it, those attacks will come, and they will come in a flurry. That's why we need to be able to equip that shield of faith at a moment's notice, that faith that reminds us who the object of our faith is, that faith that reminds us of the promises that God has provided us with that faith that reminds us that God has a purpose in everything. And so we want to take up that shield of faith in order to deflect all those attacks that are going to come from Satan and the demonic realm. But I also wanted to show you a number of examples of faith because as I was looking at just some of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can learn just in the areas that he brings up this word faith. As a reminder to us of the faith that we need to exhibit each and every day. And so I want to be able to follow some examples of faith. Looking at Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about Abraham. Abraham is significant to all of us. He is the forefather of our faith. Okay, we are all sons and daughters of Abraham. Because Abraham was the one who was called and it was through him that all the nations of the world would be blessed. That is why when you read the book of Matthew, Matthew starts off by introducing Jesus as a son of Abraham, a son of David and a son of Abraham. But here Paul is talking about Abraham, and he says, for this reason it is by faith, and he's talking about Abraham's righteousness, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So if our salvation is by faith, it also is connected to grace, showing that our salvation is a gift. Those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations, that is Abraham, have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed. This word for belief, again, that's the same word for faith in verb form. He believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And verse 18, once again about Abraham, in hope, against hope, he believed. Because when you think about the example of Abraham, he was already well past the age of childbearing. Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. And Abraham was scratching his head saying, I don't know how I'm going to become a father of a great nation when we're both well past the age of childbearing. Sarah thought it was so ridiculous that she laughed when she heard it. Remember that? You know, but the Lord in His grace reminded Abraham that He is going to make it happen. And we see there in verse 18, despite all human reason not to believe in it, it says here, in hope against hope, he believed. He believed, and it was because of that belief in God that he was counted as righteous. The book of Hebrews, if you've ever done a study of the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a magnificent book. And it is addressed actually to Jewish Christians. It is addressed primarily to Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to their old Jewish beliefs rather than believe in Christ. Why? Because persecution has come. They're they're tempted to go back to their old beliefs because persecution has started with the Christians, and they think by going back to their old beliefs they can escape this persecution. Now, we know historically that the persecution ended up coming against the Jews as well. But this entire chapter really is... Whoever the author is, and we don't know for sure who the author is, probably someone on Paul's apostolic team, but the author of Hebrews, he is emphasizing to the Jews how important it is to keep their faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is better than any old systems that they clung to in the past. He is better than the angels, better than Moses. And when we get to chapter 11, he says this, he talks about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me say that again. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. What is that talking about? That's talking about in the future, what we know is coming. We know in the future that Jesus Christ is returning. We know that in the future, when we pass from this temporal existence, that we are going to be resurrected with glorified bodies. We have a hope that in the future, we're going to be in the blessed presence of God for all eternity. We have faith. That is, the assurance of things that we are hoping for in the future that will come to pass once Jesus Christ returns. And it is the conviction of things not seen. You see, if you have to be able to see it, then it's not faith. We don't need to see the Lord Jesus Christ to know that He is real. We don't need to be able to see a physical manifestation of God to know that He is real. We know God exists just through His Word. We know that God exists through the work of His Spirit in our hearts, in our minds. That is what faith is. Faith doesn't demand to see. Because if you remember when Jesus Christ was here in His earthly ministry, they were constantly demanding a sign. They were constantly demanding that He does this and does that. And at the end of it all, when He went to the cross, it was very few that were there willing to be there with Him. Many of them scattered. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In verse 2, he goes on to say, for by it the men of old. This is talking about the men of the Old Testament, the saints of the Old Testament. This is how they gained approval with God, by having faith in God. And even verse 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. We know the heavens and the earth were created by the almighty hand of God. And just as your kids, they're going to go into secular schools, you're going to go into secular universities, or if they don't, even if they go to Christian places, they may still be exposed to these worldly ideas of things like evolution. And, you know, to be honest with you, to be an atheist takes a lot more faith than to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian, we have historical events. We have manifestations of God's Word to us. We have the Spirit given to us. We have the truth that has awakened us, that helped us to see the truth that we didn't see before. But to be an atheist, you've got to put faith into all kinds of speculations that can never be proven true. You've got to be able to believe that everything and everyone came from nothing. Now, recently, some of them say, oh, well, there was always this pre-existing matter. Okay, well, where would the pre-existing matter come from? you're still ultimately going to have to come to the conclusion that everything came from nothing. And they might say to us, well, what about you? You, you believe that God existed. You, how did, where did God come from? Well, I mean, it's very clear. God is eternal. You see, it's a lot easier for me to believe that there was an intelligent supreme being who existed from all eternity from whom all things came to be. Even when you see the miracle of life, right? Mothers, when you gave birth to your children, you recognize that that wasn't just an act of science. That was an act of an almighty, holy God who gave life. It is why even today, as we think about the elections that are coming up and the political issues, there is no issue in my mind that comes even close to the murder of the unborn. You know, We we believe that God gives life. He gives it from conception. We have faith in God as our creator. We have faith that everyone that we meet is created in that image of God. We also have faith that God is going to provide for our needs. In Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 25 and 30, and you'll remember the context here. This will be very familiar to you. Jesus said, for this reason, in verse 25, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So in other words, don't be anxious about your worldly needs. God knows what you need. And verse 30, he says, but if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus was making the point that when you are overly concerned about how your needs are going to be met, you are not showing faith in a God who provides. God will protect you. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 25. This is when the disciples, you may remember this, they got into a boat and that storm suddenly came about. And that boat was rocked to and fro. Jesus was asleep during all that. Verse 25. And they, being the disciples, came to him, woke up and said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Well, if they had realized who was in the boat with them, they would have known there was no way they were going to perish. And so that's why in verse 26, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and he became perfectly calm. And look at verse 27, the men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, if you understand God is the creator of all things, you know that God has sovereign control over everything that happens in this world. Everything. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, even the fires that occur, God is fully sovereign over all of those things. And you need to trust in God and His purposes. And even Peter, remember there was another time he was in the boat and he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter said to him, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, in verse 29, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I'm not suggesting that you go out to the Sultan Sea and try walking on water. First of all, yeah, you don't want to swallow it. You don't want to smell it. Um, But secondly, this is not the same situation. This is Peter seeing Jesus Christ the Lord and the Lord giving him the power in that moment to walk on water towards him. All he had to do is trust in the Lord. But on the other hand, we often slight Peter for his littleness of faith, but he's the one that got out of the boat, right? Everyone else stayed in the boat. So he may have been a man of little faith, but it was still more faith than everyone else that was in the boat. And then chapter 17, Jesus had to rebuke a demon. He had given his disciples the power to cast out demons. But in this case, they couldn't cast out this demon, and so Jesus had to rebuke that demon himself. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, I don't suggest you go out and try to move mountains. Okay, because when we look at really the testimony of the apostles and the disciples following Jesus Christ, we actually don't have any biblical evidence that they actually moved mountains. So what is the point of this statement? The point of this statement is that if God needs to move mountains in order for you to do His will, He will do it. Whatever God's will is for you, whatever God has willed for you to be able to endure, He will help you to endure it if it's God's purpose and will for you to do His will, to be able to glorify Him, and it is certainly the case for each and every one of us. We have been called to glorify God. We have been called to grow in the Lord. We have been called to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has given you that power. You just need to have faith in that power. You need to have faith in God, even and especially during those trials that you go through. You see, sometimes it's during the trials that we think, oh, if it wasn't for these trials, I would be growing. Some of you in marriages, difficult marriages, I've heard husbands telling me, oh, if it wasn't for my wife, I would be so holy. Or wives tell me, you know what, if it wasn't for my husband, I would be walking with the Lord. Or sometimes children talking to me about how difficult their parents are, and they prevent them from being able to grow. No, you you know, the trials that you go through, listen to this, because this is where your faith is important. Your faith is not going to keep you out of trials. Remember, the disciples were in that boat when that storm came. Jesus is the one that took them into the storm. Jesus is going to take us through storms and difficulties and trials, but your faith in God is what's going to help you endure it. Your faith in God is going to help you to endure it and to be able to grow through it and it's those trials that make you even stronger take a look at first peter chapter 1 first peter chapter 1 peter talks about the proof of your faith Verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. He is talking about the reality of being able to rejoice, to rejoice even though you've been distressed by trials. Yes, it is possible. And here's the purpose of those trials. Verse 7, So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory Glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ your faith the trials that you go through is meant to purify your faith it is meant to give glory to God just by how you handle those trials and he goes on to say and though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now you believe in him you have faith in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory and verse 9, here's our hope, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. If you have been given the faith of God, then that faith should sustain you all the way to the end. It should help you grow. It should sustain you. And even the last chapter of that first book of 1 Peter, that first letter that Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, and this is so parallel to what we're reading in Ephesians. It's amazing how often I go to 1 Peter because there are so many parallels between 1 Peter and Ephesians. Peter writes this, be of sober spirit. Why? Be on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is out there seeking to someone devour. But verse 9, here's the commandment to us. It's not to fight him, but it's to resist him. It's to take that defensive stance. It is to put on that shield of faith, to resist him firm in your faith. It's the same kind of language that Paul uses with the armor of God. Resist him, be firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You see, Satan is going to bring you through suffering. He is going to bring you through trials. And if you don't believe me, just read the book of Job, right? That's what the book of Job is all about. It's all about the the suffering and the trials that he's going to bring you through. He is going to bring you through those trials. But you actually have the power to continue to exalt in God even when you are experiencing those trials. And you are called to have faith in God. And we look at just some examples of where faith is needed even in our lives. I think about how many so-called believers appear to be walking away from the faith. Former pastors, former Christian musicians, we've seen a number of them over the last year or two. How is that going to affect your faith? You should be able to look at that and say, you know what? I still have faith in God, even if they don't, and pray for their faith. How will young believers respond when they're confronted with worldly thinking, when they go to universities and they're being taught about evolution, about gender fluidity, about critical theory? Remember, I taught you Marxism and critical theory at the beginning of July, and just look how prevalent it is in our society. How are your youngsters going to respond when they're confronted with that? Because we live in a world that tries to suppress the truth, and Satan is doing everything he can to take your faith out of God and put it into man, put it into the world. Put it into any worldly system. Put it into any religion, any faith, just not the faith in the true God. Parents, how will you respond when you're, if or when your children begin engaging and accepting such worldly beliefs? A lot of times, and I've heard these stories over and over again, you send your kids off to college or university and they come back and they identify by a different gender. They identify by a different sexual orientation. They no longer believe in the Word of God. They have rejected it. or In a lot of cases, they continue to believe in God, but they say it's okay for me to be gender fluid, to be transsexual, to be lesbian or homosexual. How are you as parents going to respond to that? Of course, you need to keep loving your kids. I'm not saying that you don't. But do not compromise on your faith in what you know is true. And trust that God is bringing you through that situation for a specific purpose. How do you respond to the daily attacks that you feel preventing you from reading, from praying, from meditating, evangelizing? All of us have been tempted not to do these things. All of us have opened up the word and and felt the attacks of Satan as our minds are on so many different things or as we read and we don't feel like we understand what we're reading. And then we just give up and then shut the book and put it on the table and leave it for the next day. That is the spiritual attacks. And that is when you have to have faith in God that, you know what, I am going to determine myself to try to read and understand. I'm going to pray to God to help take away whatever it is that's flooding my mind. Help me give some focus, even if it's just one verse, even if it's just a part of a verse or a few verses, whatever I can read, I'm going to read it because I have faith in God that he works through his word, that he will grow us, and that this will be profitable. The word of God never returns void, amen? How will you respond to the physical trials in your life? And I've talked about this. I've given many examples just through this message. A lot of times we allow the physical trials to take us away from our faith. How will you handle the loss of loved ones? How will you handle the uncertainty of the future? The uncertainties of our loved ones. The uncertainty of circumstances that are beyond our control. You are not in control. God is in control. And God is going to bring about exactly what He has purposed to bring about. And that's why Romans 8.28 is such a beautiful verse. For He causes all things to come together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Your faith is going to help you endure that uncertainty and put your trust into Him. How are you going to handle those opportunities for evangelism? When God brings you unbelievers, when you're in conversations with them, a lot of times we react with the fear of man saying, I don't want to share this. They're not going to accept it. They're going to mock me. They're going to do whatever. But we need to have faith in God that, you know what? The simple message of the gospel saves. And there are so many people, including people here, that were hardened atheists before you came to Christ. You, you were hardened in your unbelief. I know so many people who were hardened atheists, who, were, who bought into all these worldly ideologies that stood so firmly against the church, so firmly against Judeo-Christian values, but at some point the Lord gave them a new heart. And it comes from the simple message of the gospel. You just have to have faith in God and share it and trust that God will do His work as He wills. How do you handle situations where your faith is mocked? Similar idea. But beloved, we need to have Faith, and it's not just any kind of faith, but it is a faith in God that helps us to endure the trials and tribulations of this life. It is a faith that needs to stay focused upon God and His truth, to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is a faith that is going to require you to battle each and every single day. That's why the scriptures say that you are to take up the shield of faith. God will protect you, but you need to take up that shield. Because it is possible for believers not to take up that shield. And if they don't take up that shield, they become useless on the battlefield. They don't grow. They stagnate. And all of us have been there. All of us. We know what that feels like. So make today the day that you commit to taking up that shield of faith, putting on the full armor of God, putting your faith into God and in His promises, And that's why you need to be in the Word, because as you grow in the Word, you grow in your knowledge of his promises to us. You grow in your knowledge of how Satan operates and how God protects us. You grow in your knowledge in reading all these examples of these wonderful saints throughout the scriptures of how they endure difficult trials. It's all over the scriptures. And it will counsel your heart the more you read it and understand it. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, Let me assure you that what you are lacking right now is faith. You are unrighteous before God. You have no righteous standing before God because the scriptures say that we live once and then come judgment. And when you stand before God in judgment, you will not be righteous before him. You will not have an innocent or a righteous verdict because you are a sinner just like all of us. There is only one exception, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why God sent Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh, to come into this world, to go to the cross, to die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would put their faith into him. And so for you this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you recognize that you are a sinner, if you recognize that you stand condemned before God, if you recognize that there is no possible good works that you can do to find good grace with God, the only way to find your grace with God, to find grace from God, to be deemed righteous and innocent, is to confess that His Son is Lord and Savior and to repent of your sins, to turn away from your prior manner of life and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not an easy walk. If you've been paying attention to this message, you know it is not easy. Every day is a battle, but the outcome is secured. Our hope is secure. We simply just need to have faith in the one who provides us that hope. Let us pray.